We read responsively this morning Psalm 25. It is added in your order of worship from the Common English Bible Translation. I offer my life to you, Lord. My God, I trust you. Please don't let me be put to shame. Don't let my enemies rejoice over me. For that matter, don't let anyone who hopes in you be put to shame. Instead, let those who are treacherous without excuse be put to shame. Make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach it to me, because you are the God who saves me. I put my hope in you all day long. Lord, remember your compassion and faithful love. They are forever. But don't remember the sins of my youth or my wrongdoing. Remember me only according to your faithful love, for the sake of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and does the right thing. The Lord teaches sinners which way they should go. God guides the weak to justice, teaching them the way of the Lord. All the Lord's paths are loving and faithful for those who keep the Lord's covenant and laws. Please, for the sake of your good name, Lord, forgive my sins, which are many. Where are the ones who honor the Lord? God will teach them which path to take. They will live a good life, and their descendants will possess the land. The Lord counsels those who honor him and makes his covenant known to them. My eyes are always looking to the Lord, who will free my feet from the net. Turn to me, God, and have mercy on me, because I'm alone and suffering. My heart's troubles keep getting bigger. Set me free from my distress. Look at my suffering and trouble. Forgive all my sins. Look at how many enemies I have and how violently they hate me. Please protect my life. Deliver me. Don't let me be put to shame because I take refuge in you. Let integrity and virtue guard me because I hope in you. Please, God, save Israel from all its troubles. And we pray. Spirit of the living God, reveal your word to us this day that we might have life in your name. Amen. I offer my life to you, Lord. These words form the beginning of the psalmist's midnight reflection, lying awake in the dark, pondering all of life's many possibilities. Perhaps you can relate to the writer's inner restlessness. And what about the words themselves? Are you able to make them your own? and picture yourself molding each letter on the pages of your prayers. My God, I trust you. Please don't let me be put to shame. Notice the intimacy 
with which the writer articulates a feeling of deep anxiety, along with the feeling of urgency and desperation, as though something valuable is at stake. Whether it's the writer's own well-being or reputation, emotional and spiritual state, or just a sense that what is feared may come to pass. Whether the enemies are real or only perceived, whether the threat is external or lies somewhere hidden on the inside, regardless of the circumstances, there is a genuine concern that the psalmist will be left defeated, without resources, without support, and without the capacity to guard against what can only be described as a profound experience of vulnerability. Such an expression of powerlessness is notable since by way of tradition, we have come to understand these to be the words of a king. David, anointed of God to serve among the people, was said to possess a heart for the divine and a sensitivity toward the things of God. He was also in the early years of his reign successful by nearly every measure and definition. And yet, in today's reading, David is seemingly beset by insecurity, tormented by his own past mistakes, and plagued by the uncertainties of all that the future may bring. Thus, it is striking that his words denote confidence, not in himself, but in his God. And his faith is placed not in personal achievements, which, as we know, may come and go, but in the memory of God's faithful love and promises, which he declares shall be forever. So he says, make your ways known to me, Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth. Teach it to me, because you are the God who saves me. I put my hope in you all day long. These are not the words of someone who already has the answers. These are not the prayers of someone who has it all figured out. Nor are they the petitions of one who is content to try and make it solely by their own strength. No, these are the words of a person who is otherwise out of options. And with nowhere else to turn, the psalmist turns to one who can enter in and respond. And therein lies the honesty that is the soil in which the seeds of integrity are planted. For sincerity is a prerequisite to the possibility of renewal. And we will never be sure just how long it took for the author to pen this prayer. We cannot be certain just how many denials were spoken into the dark. We will never know how many sleepless nights of silence were endured before the truth finally came to light. I cannot make it any longer on my own. I need your help. So long as we try to avoid coming to grips with how we really feel, so long as we refuse to give voice and to name that which is hurting, so long as we resist 
telling as much of the truth as we can muster. There can be no genuine discernment of what God's path for us might be. And there can be no inner searching and discovery for what is real. David's willingness to say it plainly that he feels like he is suffering all by himself is in fact part of what leads to his clarity that God is listening. David's willing admission that he feels like all of his troubles are growing and that everything just keeps getting worse is in fact a precursor to his plea for God to look at him and see and have mercy. Because our honesty with God in prayer opens a door within our lives for the divine not only to meet us, but also to help us on the journey of finding our way. To put it bluntly, David's willingness to say out loud, I'm not okay, is in fact the beginning of his process of being able to figure out what being okay even really means. It is therefore also no coincidence that the psalmist cycles in and out of grief and pleading, in and out of sadness and hope. That's because we do not process our deepest feelings and experiences in linear stages. It is more often a cyclical process by which we are growing in maturity. In other words, the psalmist isn't confused. The cycle of prayer is instead an indication that something valuable is happening. A transformation is taking place as one emotion gives way to another and back again. And each emotion has a role to play, and each experience has wisdom to share. After all, we're not trying to defeat our experiences and our feelings as much as we're trying to learn how to live with them. The psalmist's genuine confession of fear in today's reading is precisely what led to an experience of deeper trust that lay hidden, just waiting to be discovered, enabling the dialogue that is itself the practice of prayer to continue, no matter how precarious the situation may be, no matter how fragile our prayers might seem at first, to us, because when we're trying our best to avoid telling the truth, we're really just hiding from ourselves. But it is God who is able to meet us in our honesty, and it is God who is able to guide our path from there. In addition to cycling in and out of grief, you may also have noticed that the writer's language alternates in focus between the singular and the group. The shift in language also reminds us that this psalm, even if it had been composed by a single author, has been preserved 
by the worshiping community and has played a role in forming communities of faith, one generation after another, to be aware of the important relationship between the individual and the collective. Though clearly beginning in the language of the first person, I offer my life to my God. Don't let my enemies rejoice over me. The psalmist's words quickly move to an intercession on behalf of the whole. Come to think of it, the writer says, don't let anyone who hopes in you be put to shame. This trend in language continues throughout the psalm as the writer prays not only for themselves and for their own situation, but for the entire community. And in a meaningful way, the psalm comes to an end accordingly. Redeem Israel, that is, the whole community, together from all its troubles. The shift from the individual to the collective in this psalm is a rather important one, for it denotes the willingness of the writer to see their own prayers as part of the prayers of the people, resting their prayers beside the prayers of another, seeking redemption not only for themselves, but for the many. As people of faith, there can be no redemption apart from the community of the redeemed. And our responsibility to one another is in fact a sign that this redemption is taking place. By treating one another with dignity and by acknowledging and so enacting a mutuality of concern for the common good, we live as bearers of the good news that we belong to one another. Much like the trajectory of today's reading that brings all of our prayers together, it is here too in the sacrament that we are being drawn ever closer into communion. No matter our fears, our hopes, our reservations, or our desires, it is around this table it is given that we may uncover an even greater awareness that in Christ we are together. And much like in the psalm, so we too in the liturgy of the sacrament come to an end only so that we may begin again. Our life of faith is surely personal, but it is never private. No, our faith is meant to be lived in the reality of the world as we know it. We cannot remove ourselves from the concerns of this world, and that is why there can be no indifference among people of faith, because our lives and our stories do not exist and cannot exist apart from each other. The God made known in the life, suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus cannot be praised while ignoring those who are suffering here and now. Thus, as followers of Jesus, we must ever be learning the way of Jesus, opening our ears to the cries of the innocent, 
opening our lives to the brokenhearted and all who have been made victims, that we together may discern the paths of love and faithfulness. Even our prayers, as personal as they often are to us, are not for ourselves alone, nor are they brought to God in isolation. Instead, when we pray, we also are praying on behalf of those who do not pray, who cannot pray, in order that, like the psalmist, our voices, when offered in the presence of the divine, may express the sounds of our solidarity with all of creation. In this season of Lent, as we gather around the table in order to break this bread and cup together, we do so not for ourselves alone, but on behalf of all for whom it is intended. Indeed, we gather around this table as a gesture of intercession for the world. And we, by partaking of the bread and cup that Christ has given to us, are offering our lives back to God, adding our stories to the litany of all those who have gone before us, all of the many who suffer still, and by acknowledging the way of being to which we now are drawn, we place our trust in being held together by a promise that is greater than our troubles could ever be. For it is God in Christ who invites us to communion at this table, leading the church toward that union which has been promised, and by means of Christ's presence with us here, God's promise of a renewed community is made visible. Small though it seems, this bread and cup are the signs of grace and a foretaste of the redemption that is happening now, even as we gather. For in this bread and in this cup, we are partaking of the salvation of God in order that the paths of love would guide us always and to that day when all our troubles will come to an end and God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. By the promise of the Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.